Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And we are here today talking about The House of the Scorpion by Nancy Farmer, which is the last of our 2003 honor books. And we have a little blurb from the Newberry Awards guide uh, put out by Alsk and edited by Kathleen T. Horning. Farmer tackles the provocative topics of cloning, the value of life, illegal immigration, and the drug trade in a coming-of-age novel set in a desolate futuristic desert. (laughs) (laughs) That actually somehow manages to make it sound boring. Yes, it sounds like a nonfiction book. um, It's like enjoy your political science people. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and and that is this book is so much more and so much more horrifying than this uh this citation would lead you to believe. It's true. It's true. I you know, there are books that we read that you're like, "Do you like this book?" and I'm like, "Yeah, you know. Yeah, I like it." But like this book I like. Like this is such a hard book to put down. It's actually fairly long, actually. Let me look and see, but I think my copy is you know, around all right, 380 pages. And seriously, I have never yet read it not in one sitting. Really? Yeah. I This, this, bu- is- this book I find so hard to put down. This was my first time reading it. Ooh. And um, I could not read it in one setting because it was so upsetting to me. Oh. Uh-huh. It is incredible. It's incredibly written. It's incredible. It's incredible pace and there's so many things crammed in here so many issues crammed in here there's amazing characters um it was just so upsetting in so many different (laughs) ways that I had to keep putting it down kind of about when there was a like usually at a section break that makes sense um well so okay a lot of books that we read skew young you know, or we have this debate, is this sort of like more of second grade or fourth grade or whatever? But this, no matter what your standards are, skews towards the very highest end of reading age for the Newberries. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is very, I almost, because it did win a Prince um, honor as well. In a, um, in and a then it won the National Book Award. Award. Yeah. Um, but it, it uh, the Prince is the YA book, mm-hmm. you know, by YA Book Award. So, mm-hmm. I am on the fence about whether I think this is um, really falls within the range at all. I mean, I think as far as uh, language level, like readability wise, I yes, I mean, I think that it falls in the age group. And I think, you know, 13, 12, 13 year olds can definitely read this like they can understand the words. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I had read this at that age, I think it would have scared the shit out of me. <laughs> Um, and, but that's just a personal thing. So I would never, you know, I definitely would give this to kids who've read, um, or like big fans of like Margaret Haddock's and, um, the Michael Grant books and, you know, things that are really distraught, um, kind of middle grade, like, like disaster books and, uh, mystery books, but it's just, (laughs) it's so well done. And so it feels even though it's not a real place, it's not happening in a real time or real place. But it's so plausible. It's plausible. It also is just feels very real. This book is about a kid named Matt. Um, his full name is Matteo Alacran. And he he's basically 
uh, a test tube clone of a drug lord. And he doesn't know this. He doesn't know what a clone is. He doesn't know. He's never met any other kids. He is basically being raised by this like fat older cook in a shack in the middle of, of poppy fields on an opium farm. Um, and it's not until he's, how old is he when that happens? When it's like seven, I think. Yeah, he's not allowed to leave the house. No, the windows and doors are like locked shut. And when he's about seven, some kids from what he calls the big house where his um, his caretaker, the chef, cook, Celia, works um, all day, every day and leaves him at home alone. Some of the kids that live up there, like, come exploring through the fields and find the shack and see him. And he breaks a window to get out and talk to them and gets so injured that they actually carry him back up to the house. And that's when he finds out he's a clone because they... He's injured his foot and um, they go to help him and bandage it. And they realize that he has the writing on the bottom of his foot that indicates he's a clone. Yeah. And then they literally treat him like garbage. Like he's severely bleeding and they fling him out onto the lawn. Because I guess in this world, clones are not considered alive, even though they are humans by all the definitions we currently have. But they are made essentially to be like organ harvested yeah. slash slash They're brain just, transplanted. Yeah, but they um <laughs> so most clones at birth are are their minds are damaged to the point that they're just um they're these horrible creatures, right? They're not people in the way that you would consider people to be people. It's like the baboon coming out of the machine and the fly. So, but okay. so, but Where it can make a noise. It can make a noise. You can see its parts, but they're not in the right order, and it's scary. Well, so, but that's the standard for clones. Like that's actually the law. It's just that the drug lord, whose clone Matt is, is powerful enough to be like, no, don't do that to mine, and it, he can break the law and not suffer suffer any consequences. But the because every other clone is this horrible, gibbering, like drooling frightening thing like that's how all clones are treated and so matt is not treated as human he's barely treated like an animal but he's really intelligent mm -hmm. and celia is aware of this and um and she teaches him. him things yeah she loves him she's his mom um and she teaches him things and he is very intelligent um and that's why the kids at first didn't even know he was a clone right um so he's thrown into this oh god this this part oh god oh. The drug lord is El Patron, and he demands that they take care of him instead of letting him go back. To so I guess he had set this situation up where Celia was taking care of him, but now that everybody else knows about him, they're bringing him up to the big house to be cared for. But the woman who has to take care of him is so disgusted at the idea of taking care of a clone that she just mistreats him horribly, horribly, and decides that he needs to be treated literally like an animal. And the best way to keep him is to do like a chicken keeping deep litter method, which I've actually done with real chickens. <laughs> it, is it is effective, but for a human being, obviously horrible. So wait a minute, because, okay, so here's the thing. They keep scooping hay on top of hay, like... So he just like poops in the hay. He eats in the hay. Mm -hmm. He like, I mean, you got to give it to him. He creates his own little like system where he's just like tunneling around and he's got food hidden mm -hmm. and 
it's an animal keeping method that's actually valid for like for chickens, right? But do but do chickens do that? Do chickens like they actually bury things in the litter no. and they like go back to them and they tunnel? No. And so basically okay. with, with chickens what happens is it's kind of like like a almost like a cat litter situation only fluffier, right? It it dries out the the sawdust or the hay dries out like the poop or whatever and it settles to the bottom and it almost sort of composts, but because you keep sort of refreshing the dry sawdust it keeps everything like cleaner. Okay. It's hard to explain, but it I'm works just, very well. No, I get it and I totally understand. Um I'm just glad that to know that chickens don't tunnel the way he was tunneling because that would No, that's gross. That would again, that would be <laughs> Another thing to horrify me. Well, and so with chickens, you feed them in a separate place. And so it's not like they're squirreling food away to entice bugs in or whatever the way that this happened. Yeah, because that's another thing is like bugs get involved. And it's really gross. It's really gross. And he starts to sort of lose his mind. Yeah. And so he's just like in this big pit of like sawdust. And despair. with And with food and poop. And he's just like he it becomes a wild thing. And this is only like the very beginning of the book, really. One of the one of the kids that got him out of the house in the poppy field is a little girl that he becomes really attached to and who actually treats him kind of like a person. She has such a bleeding heart, right, throughout this entire mm-hmm. book. Like anything that's hurt or sad or helpless, like she has to help it. And that's really how she first gets involved. That's true. She, I don't. Yeah, I don't think she still really sees him as a person, but she does see him as something worthy of her attention and protection to some degree. It's interesting. Until he, like you know, until later. Yeah. But. Well, it's interesting to watch her progression through the book too, because she has these sort of like enlightened ideals, right? But like, she still doesn't see him as a real thing for a long, long, long time. But you can see how she progresses from an objective, like outside standpoint, which is weird. It is strange, but it is, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting way of getting um, different perspectives in mm-hmm. without being too preachy. So yeah, like she's sort of, I do like, appreciate that. Yeah, she's, uh, the this book is like a masterpiece of the show don't tell thing, you know, like you're, the way that Matt progresses from not knowing anything to knowing all of these unbearable things is so impressive. Like nothing is revealed in a preachy or explainy way. Like everything in this book is done in such a natural and sort of horrifying way. It's compelling. He's taken out of the the, the pen He's given clothes. He is now at um, El Patron's side. and He's, he's educated. Um, he's formally educated. Um, and he's he's allowed to start growing up. And it turns out that he's got this unexpected musical gift, which he's allowed to indulge. And he, he learns how to become this very accomplished musician, which shocks everyone. El Patron has um, two bodyguards um, that are Scottish. And one is named Tam Lin, which I kept thinking about your description of the <laughs> the, the tale of Tam Lin that was in our episode about um, the tales from Scotland. Yeah, that this whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're kind of these big bruiser type guys um, who end up also being enlisted to protect him because he is El Patron. Yeah, I mean, to, for all intents and purposes, he is the the genetic double of El Patron. Also, I don't think we've mentioned El Patron is like 147 years old. 
like he's ancient, but he uh, mysteriously gets sort of worse and then better and then worse and then better and makes a lot of cryptic remarks that start to make more and more sense. Like this book, for me, I think that it's YA in the best sense because it, um, I feel like a lot of YA books, even ones that I really enjoy, focus on this love story. And while there is a very important love story in this book, it doesn't, it's not the emotional focus of the book. Like it's a really important plot device and it's interesting, but like I don't feel as emotionally invested in it as I do in the like general tone of the whole book. Do you know what I mean? Oh no, definitely. And that's, I'm always going to be a fan of that because I, I, I'm an old fart and I, <laughs> old prude, prune, whatever you want to say. And I, it's not that I think the teen romances or romances in kids books are bad. I just feel like there's too much of a focus on them over and over and over. Yeah. Over. And life is long and there's lots of complicated emotions about other things that we have to go through. And so I like to see books that have models for those situations as well. And not that it can't have a love interest because this has a love interest in it, but it is not by any means the entirety of the story. And um, it tells me something a bit new um, that I hadn't really thought of before. Honestly, if I had to, if I had to really categorize the like subgenre of this book, I would call it a YA horror book and not in the like gruesome, bloody kind of horror, but in like real creepy, this is horrifying but so well done kind of horror. You know what I mean? I would call it like a thriller, a suspense thriller. Yeah. So it reminds me very, very much of Brave New World. Like mm. there's such a like a tone to it. I don't know. It Like all of the books that we got assigned to read in like late middle school, early high school, like Brave New World and Animal Farm in 1984, like this has a, like a vibe that goes with them. Only it's much more readable and much more compelling. Not not more compelling because those books are obviously very compelling, but like, but the kind of quality that makes it impossible to just like stop reading a book. I completely agree. In fact, actually, weirdly, like <laughs> this sounds bizarre because this is a Newbery book, but for me, like this book is a big dollop of Brave New World and a huge, huge chunk of uh, Weeds. If you ever watched that show. Did you ever see that show? Oh, because, yeah, because of the drug content? Well, so basically, like, they're living in this luxurious, like, I don't think maybe we've explained this. Okay, they're living in this super luxurious world, and it is because, as is explained about, like, two-thirds of the way through the book, at one point in history, the the drug lords who were sort of living along the borders of Mexico and the U.S. said to the governments of both those countries okay, you can't control your borders or your illegal immigration and you can't control us, the drug lords. So how about this? You give us this strip between the US and Mexico. We will control ourselves and not sell our drugs in either of your countries, solving your big problem. And we will also control the borders, solving another huge problem. And the country has both said yes. So there is a land called opium that runs in between Mexico and the US and it is owned and run completely by drug lord families. So they're living this decadent, ridiculous life and they have all the power in the world and they take all of the immigrants that try to escape over one border or another going either direction and they sort of um, mentally hobble them 
so that they have no personality or willpower anymore and they have to do just exactly what they're told no matter what to the point of dying because nobody tells them to stop and take a drink. And so Matt feels powerless not only because of the fact that he's a clone, but because he's a clone of the most powerful drug lord that runs this crazy situation. And in fact is so old that he he created the institution, right? Like he helped make that country. But then uh, Matt discovers the real purpose of him and his body and why he was created. And he, but the, here's the crazy thing is that because he is the clone of El Patron, like every time he sees El Patron, everything about him seems right. Like everything from like his eyes to his mannerisms to his personality, because they're clones of each other, like he, he has this unreasoning affection for El Patron. And El Patron is spoiling Matt, right? No other clone is treated this way. No other clone <laughs> is left with his intelligence. And so Matt can never quite completely believe especially since no one has ever explicitly spelled it out for him, that that this is his fate. He thinks that he's being groomed to sit at El Patron's right hand and, like, rule with him. Yes. Because El Patron genuinely likes him. Yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, seems to. I mean, there's no indication that he doesn't. But then it becomes quite apparent that he is scheduled to be kind of... Harvested, Har- harvested for yes. yeah, harvested for El Patron's upgrade. Um, and Tam Lin, one of the Scottish guards, has left him supplies um, on the perimeter of the property, mm-hmm. along with information about a woman who writes about how clones are human. Yeah, so there's this book that that Tam Lin leaves for him to read that's about the history of the country of opium, and it is scathing right of course um and at first matt is just furious at the author because she's saying all these terrible things about everything that he's ever known and loved but the more he reads of it the more he agrees with it and he realizes eventually that maria this girl that he is super close with and of course loves by this point who has always believed that her mother is dead the author is her mother Mm mm-hmm and so if he can figure out a good way to help Maria find her mother, then she could be free of the country at least. Like there's a way for her to get out. Because she'll have her mom to go to. Yeah. Because he knows that anybody could write like that about the country could be like very dogged about helping somebody get out of it. Particularly your own daughter. And she got out of it. So Yeah. Yeah. So, and then there's a a point where he kind of wanders around in the desert, so to speak. I mean, figuratively figuratively and literally. So there's this horrible crisis where El Patron is dying, right? And they have to find him and uh, they're about to kind of sedate him to take his heart uh, and of course kill him. And then his, his nurse Celia reveals that she has been poisoning him with arsenic slowly enough not to hurt him, but enough so that if any of his organs are harvested for El Patron, it will kill El Patron. Yeah. I know Celia, I, I knew Celia was going to die for that, but I loved her so much more even oh my gosh. when that was revealed. And, yeah. she, and she was not trying to hide it. She was defiant. She's like, nope, you can't take his parts. They're poison. Like, <laughs> And everyone yeah. was like totally shocked and it was great. And Nobody knew what to do, and they tested all his. They tested his hair to make sure that she was telling the truth, and she was hauled off to be turned into one of these poor slaves with no mental capacity. Um, although Tamlin 
managed to pretend that that happened and to, to save her. But um, they they were, quote unquote, going to put Matt to sleep, right? They're just mm-hmm. like, well, we have no more use for this stock animal, so let's just put it down. And that is when Matt went on this sort of escape pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. And he ends up being caught up by some border patrol guards and put to work um, with other child laborers. Yeah, so they have this crazy, like, so he escaped toward the Mexico side of the border. Um, although it's not called, what's it called instead of Mexico? Azatlan? Um, it's not called Mexico anymore, but they he, he makes his way towards the Mexico side of the border and manages to get there. Um, but they have this crazy situation for anybody who's an orphan, because apparently there are a lot of them, which one would assume makes sense. Um, and it's this horrible, like, they, they feed them on plankton and they make them work in these horrible conditions. And it's super corrupt, of course. Um, and it's intolerable and nobody likes him even though he's thrilled at first because they actually treat him like a person it's just that they don't like him as a person because he's been raised as what they call an aristocrat and he's he basically has decent manners and and is educated and they all hate him for that because they were all raised just horribly poor and um and didn't have sort of the advantages that he had even though he had a much worse fate than they would have had um and eventually he escapes with a few of his friends and they make their way to the convent where Maria is going to school. Um, and Maria's mother is there and they're able to finally get some help. We have been talking a lot about the plot, but you're right. It's convoluted and it's confusing. And if we talk about what we like about it or dislike about it, nobody will understand unless we explain some of that plot. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to have, some background on this um, because it is such an involved plot and it's such an involved uh, character's journey as mm-hmm. well. And it's not a short book, like we said. So, I mean, there's a lot of room to, to let the plot be convoluted and it's not, it, it doesn't seem contrived. Mm-mm, not at all. Mm-mm. But that was one of the things I liked about the book a lot. I mean, I've already talked about how it horrified me, but um, that it has so many good strong points and that the strong points are, you know, you take this, this small character, he's very young when, when you start and you've got, um, you've got his kind of his perspective. Um, but it's third person, um, a third, a third person narrative. And, um, you get a good sense of who he is and you get a good sense of the rules of the world and it's just always impressive to me when when authors are able to do that pretty succinctly and quickly in a way that doesn't feel like it's just exposition oh yeah it's it's you understand what's happening in the world as soon as matt does because he understands nothing right so the book starts he understands nothing and as he learns you learn but you're right it's never just exposition it's never dull, not for one second, <laughs> which is hard not to do in a, in a book of this length for me. Yeah, it really is. And to have it so many plot points and so many developments and then have so many issues um, included in this, it's kind of remarkable how well it all comes together and how well 
um, the story works. And as a book, like, okay, so I know we talk sometimes about how teachable a book is when it's a Newbery, because a lot of Newbery books end up on reading lists. And I know that this book encompasses some really terrible things, right? But it manages to take a book that gives you all of these like moral questions, like what is a person? And like, what is what is good and evil? And like, how do you know that that you are who you are? Like, how do you define the world or define yourself? Or like, they're all of these like very like existential questions and make them a really, really entertaining book. And I think that for kids who are of the right age to read it, that's incredibly valuable and incredibly teachable. I completely agree. Um, I think this this provides a really good entry way into discussions about immigration, about medical um, technology, about privacy, mm-hmm. about um, yeah, because there's a very big brothery, like everybody's always watching you. Part of this mm-hmm. book, yeah, and and a lot of things about um, topics that they may have heard about or know a little bit about. I feel like this is a really safe place for them to learn kind of the downsides of a lot of uh, a lot of modern issues, if you will. Yeah. And even like the drug and alcohol abuse is very well handled. And like, like, for instance, Matt reads in this book by Maria's mother, this history of his country about how drug lords took over and because they were doing illegal stuff, it was it was dramatic. And it's unfathomable, unfathomable to him that drugs could be illegal because he's raised in this environment of like he lives on an opium farm and everyone else grows, you know, hashish or or what have you. And he can't even believe that it's illegal anywhere. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's so interesting because it, I think, in a very non-preachy, implied way, shows kids that what you are told is normal is not always normal. And you have to judge for yourself and you have to develop your own moral conscience that is not at all dependent on what other people are saying to you. Like, it's, the the moral of this whole book to me is think for yourself. Yeah, I guess I hadn't thought about there being about the I hadn't thought about that, which is unusual for me, because normally I'm like, oh, this book meant this. (laughs) Um, I think that I'm so um, I was just so blown away by Matt's journey in general that it was hard for me to see the bigger message um, or see a message that wasn't just on the pages, Mm -hmm. um, because there's so much to think about and so much to to put together and so much to link to our current political climate oh my that, God, yes. <laughs> that, that I've just spent, I've, because this was my first time reading it. This is, I spent, I've spent a lot of time connecting it to those things. Well, yeah. So but I, I, think you're, I think you're exactly right. But you know, so I've read this book many times because I love it, but I reread it yesterday and I don't think I have read it in the past five or six years. And so the parallels to our own political climate were little shocking because I'm not, I hadn't, hadn't made those parallels before because they didn't exist. Right. And now you've got this like despotic, completely selfish, completely self-absorbed and convinced that he is correct in everything that he's doing leader who thinks that everyone else literally exists to, to, serve him and to glorify him he says he's so he's super powerful and he 
El Patron has these lavish birthday parties every year, and he tells Matt that you can tell how much someone loves you by how expensive their gift is for you. It doesn't matter how much you like it. It's they love you if they if they give you an expensive gift. And he says that gifts should flow from the outside in. Like everything is for his own self-aggrandizement. And he's got this like huge cache of gifts and gold and statues and just like more and more and more and greed and greed and greed. That's just like mentioned in a subtle way, but but pervasively throughout the book. Like to the point that he treats people like possessions and not even the people who have no mental capacity and just work for him, but like his family and his own clone. And it just gets more and more and more egregious. But the more familiar, more familiar you are with what's going on (laughs) for us, the more you're like, oh, God, this this could happen. (laughs) It, it deals with issues that were present in, you know, 20, um, 2003, but it feels even more um, applicable and more, um, it just feels more like real life now. <laughs> it was so upsetting. That's the upsetting part <laughs> it really for me. Is. It really is. Um, so, I mean, and that's the thing, right, is this, it is fantastical. Uh, you know, there's elements of... I mean, there's just every single aspect of it almost has got something futuristic and outlandish. And um, by outlandish, I don't mean bad or, you know, unbelievable. I just mean just so kind of the farthest you could go with a concept. Um, But it actually, um, it just, it just reads, it reads like something that we're closer to now more than ever. Yeah. And in some cases we are, we are, it's already happening. Like the, the kids in camps, the kids, you know, being ripped away from their families. People being like just caught and put into terrible situations and, you know, people's self-absorption. I mean the, so I don't know if you, I'm sure you've seen the episode of Firefly where, um, called Heart of Gold, where they have like a, a brothel in a sort of a wild west situation and the um they're like why do you live like this we have all this technology and they're like well the people who run the town here on this little planet like to keep it like a playground like a wild west playground except you know what technology they need and that's exactly what el patron is doing because in his childhood his nostalgia is all for this sort of rustic mexican village where he was raised so he only uses the technology that suits him, like fetal brain implants, which is a horrifying concept, and like organ harvesting from these kids. So like the medical technology is very good, but they don't even have air conditioning in the house. Like they, he wants it all as authentic as possible to his own childhood memories, even if other people have to suffer. Well, I mean, do you, there's this one other thing I'm curious about. Do you think that uh, Matt is is different enough from El Patron that he avoids some of the, uh, the, the, I guess, unsavory, um, personality traits. Well, that's the thing. Like that, that's what makes this book so good in my opinion, honestly, is well, the world building for me, because for me, that's always one of the huge components of whether or not I really enjoy a book. But Matt is not this perfect, pure character, right? He's not just a victim who's suffering. He really is El Patron's clone. And he has a lot of the negative tendencies. But at one point, Tam Lin, the, the guard, says to him, you know, 
you have to choose at some point if you're going to grow this way or that way, like a tree that's going to grow in this direction or that direction. And you can choose. And Matt realizes that that's true. And in a lot of ways, Matt demonstrates that he has the capacity to be as awful as El Patron is. Like he, he kidnaps somebody's dog and he thinks that he's totally right. And he honestly, he pulls a lot of like nice guy stuff toward Maria that I really don't like. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. think, he thinks that he is totally justified in doing whatever he wants to get the result that he wants. And most of the results that he wants are okay. But he's like, I will do, I'll kidnap your pet dog to make you listen to me. Like he, he can't take a no for an answer. Yeah. So he has some really shitty <laughs> character flaws. But for me, that makes him more real. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying I necessarily would like him as a person because he is very... He, he intentionally uses mannerisms and techniques that he's seen El Patron use to get his way or to dominate people. So he's not necessarily a very nice person, but he's a fantastic character. And I think that in the right environment, he could become a good person. And I think, I hope that he actually did um, in, the, in the fantasy world that he inhabits. But like, oh, such a good character. <laughs> So have you read any of the other books? Because this is this is considered like Matteo Alacron's uh, number one. Like this is n- numbered number one in a series, I guess. Are you kidding me? There are more? Yeah, according to something I was looking at. All right. Dear Google, take my money. Um, <laughs> no, I did not know. I'm definitely going to be reading some more of those. Okay. So there's at least a, a sequel. It's called The Lord of Opium. Ooh. Okay, I'm going to read that. Um, so it follows Matt. Okay, thank you for that info, because I definitely need a little bit of new reading material in our current situation. Speaking of that, like, do you have any uh, other read-alikes? Okay, so um, I think partially because my brain is scattered because of uh, doing the uh, social distancing and just all the stuff that goes along with that. I think I'm not the only person who's got kind of brain frog, not brain frog, um, <laughs> brain fog. Um, I've, I've kind of, uh, I have three different books that kind of speak to different aspects of this book, mm-hmm. but also because this book is really hard to classify and to find something that's just a one-to-one. Uh, so um, there's a, a graphic novel called In Real Life by Cory Doctorow, and um, the art is by Jen Wang. Oh, nice. And I chose that one for because um, it's, it's similar in the aspect of um, thinking the world is one way and then finding out kind of a deep, seedy underbelly of something. And then War Cross by Marie Lu. And again, that, um, that has a lot of technical... It's, it's set in a future where um, people play video games for money and to survive. And um, that, to me, has a lot of some of the same economic content of creating an economy and kind of exploring that, exploring how that affects everybody in the world, um, even the people who it doesn't affect positively. Um, and then the closest in tone and, uh, like, the suspense kind of body horror stuff mm-hmm. um that reminds me of the unwind trilogy by neil schusterman um which is just absolutely terrifying um it it has there's a world sorry he's created a world where some teenagers are picked to 
be harvested and unwound like they never existed. So they're slowly, their parts are taken out of them and given to other people. And they're in these special facilities. Um, as they're, they're being dismantled, um, they all live together. Um, and then the last, the last thing that happens is called the unwinding and that is your brain being taken. Um, and those books are so horrifying, <laughs> but of course, because there wouldn't be a book without it, it would just be the scary thing that you're reading. Um, there's a band of scrappy survivors who, um, figure out how to, you know, subvert the system, buck the system and get out. Um, so yeah, those are my read-alikes. What about you? Um, well, I, uh, I mentioned a lot of these earlier, but a lot of the classic sort of dystopian books had a similar vibe to me. Um, Brave New World particularly, but also a little bit Animal Farm, um, 1984, just the sort of uh, hopeless, can't buck the system kind of a situation where you have no power and you're being observed and there's, you know, Big Brother all the time. But as sort of an inverse of this book, I was thinking Scott Westerfeld's Uglies series, um, mm. in which you've got this quasi-utopian society where at a certain point in adolescence everybody is um, sort of taken over to a different side of things and you have all of these surgeries that customize you and in that case everybody's looking forward to it which is why I call it an inverse but um, of course our protagonist discovers that it's actually really horrible and something you should fight against and and that's really interesting to me and it's a really enjoyable read also in a similar way. Like you just, you want to find out what happens next in this thrillery, like technological, but also uh, blind to the real consequences kind of way that Matt goes through in this book a lot. Yeah. I, yeah, I would, I totally agree. Um, and while normally we usually have a drink with uh, most of our books, and this would be a really good book to have a cocktail with, um, we're still saving up everything for one season of drinks and snacks. And this is actually a book that I'm looking forward to because the, uh, the El Patron character is obsessed with this banquet that he went to as a child um, that had Moro crabs, which are actually stone crabs and like individual little like caramel custards and like all these decadent things. And I will absolutely uh, jump on that bullet <laughs> when it comes to tasting snacks. In preparation in my grocery order this week, I got circus peanuts. Cir oh God, the circus peanuts. No. So they're in my house. They're horrifying. <laughs> they don't look, they look like more like a toy. Um, and so I've had to keep them out of reach. Um, well, if you need a doorstop. Well, I'm not going to be eating them until we are recording, but I do have them in my position. <laughs> no. so, um, so yeah. So thanks so much for listening. Next episode, we will be discussing Crispin um, the Cross of Lead by Avi, which was the winner of the 2003 Newbery Award. And we'll be wrapping up our season. Please rate and review us on whatever platform you listen. It helps other people find us and helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Production assistance for Newbery Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Meitinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. 
Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.